the thing to think about as a consumer of storage is it's a commodity. It's a metal box on a cement pad. So you're thinking about safety, cleanliness, price, and convenience. So you're factoring in those types of things when you think about what a storage facility today looks like. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Surgeon Syndicate. We are here for the second half of our discussion with Chris Benson from Reliant Capital, who is a self-storage operator. If you missed the first half of our conversation, please go back and check it out. Because Chris gives some great insights into being an investor and to investing in syndications, knowing where your risk is at, how to evaluate that, how to look at the people you're going to invest with, and some great insights. So welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you, Mike. All right. So now what I'd like to do is dive in a little bit more into the asset class, which you're the expert, which is self-storage. So what can you tell me that if somebody says, hey, Chris, why self-storage? Yeah. And this is the decision-making process that I used to invest in self-storage when I first started too, which was there are really three pillars that we stand on. And I'm happy to give you the link to the data that I did my original research on. There's this great database called the National Association of REITs, NAREIT, N-A-R-E-I-T. They track all publicly traded REITs across the space. And essentially, you can do comparators of how different asset classes have done. They've been tracking data for 28 years. So it's a pretty good data set. And if you look at self-storage historical returns over that last 28 years, it's done just under 19% a year, which is incredible, right? So not only historically has it done well, outperforming apartments, industrial, retail, office, the S&P 500 during that same period of time was just over 8%, right? So doubled in a half what the S&P did. But if you're like me, I believe everything is cyclical. So if you're going to have that run up, you're going to have a run down. And so I want to see how an asset class performs in a downturn. 2007, 8, 9 storage lost less than 4%, less than retail, less than apartments, less than office. The S&P, by the way, in that three-year period, down 21%. So rough go at the S&P. So now you have this asset class that historically has done well, recession resilient. 2021 and the beginning of 2022 were the best years in the history of our asset class. COVID for us was a boon. And the reason is storage demand is driven by transition. We use the four Ds of self-storage demand. It's death, dislocation, downsize, and divorce. If those things are happening in your life, generally you're consuming storage. And COVID was the perfect storm for all of them. People were moving all around the country. Unfortunately, people were passing away. They were downsizing or they had to work from home. So they had to put stuff from their home into stores. They had room for an office. And our occupancy and rates were at all-time highs across the industry, not just Reliant. So historically, in the last two economic cycles, storage has fared really well. Most people would say self-storage is recession resilient. So historical returns, recession resiliency. And then you and I talked about it in the last episode, which is there's a consolidation opportunity 
it's still very fragmented relative to some of the other major asset classes. Things like apartments have already been consolidated. There's not many mom and pop operators anymore. Institutional capital has already gobbled them up. And we talked about it, but about 30% of the self-storage market is owned by the five publicly traded REITs. And so there's still an opportunity to consolidate that market for those larger institutional investors. So those are really the three pillars that we stand on with our own investors. And for me personally, that's why I love the asset class. Okay. So you see all kinds of different self-storage out there. What is a big self-storage facility? So I guess a 10 by 10 unit is probably something we can all wrap our head around. So that's a hundred square feet. What's a big facility? I mean, in my mind, 100,000 square feet, there are facilities bigger than that. But our average size property in our portfolio is around 80,000 square feet. And that doesn't include like exterior surface parking, or if we have boat and RV parking outside, that's just the storage, like you said, the 10 by 10s, the 5 by 5s, 5 by 10s, the actual facilities themselves. So I would say anything over 100,000 square feet, that's a big facility. Okay. And we talked before about, well, you just mentioned it there, boat storage, RV storage. So what are some of the other things that help make a facility profitable? So, I mean, the answer is it depends on the market that you're in. Our particular strategy is we're a value add shop. So we're trying to find ways to grow net operating income at the site, right? For the listeners not understanding In commercial real estate, valuation is predicated on profitability. And in our world, that profit is measured by net operating income or your people talk about NOI. So our job is to grow NOI at the site. And the biggest lever, the biggest way we can do that is expansion, right? We buy a 50,000 square foot facility with 500 units. We build another 20,000 square feet with another 200 units. And we try to get those units leased up. Our expenses are basically the same, right? But now we got all this new revenue and all that revenue falls to the net operating income. And that makes your site more profitable. There are other things that we think of ancillary items, Mike, things like U-Haul truck rental, tenant insurance, point of sale items like locks, boxes, tape, that type of thing. But generally, they're a smaller percentage of our overall revenue stream. But I think the other thing where there's sometimes low-hanging fruit with mom and pop operators to a more institutional platform is just managing rate well. Keep in mind that storage facilities have a 30-day lease. So different than apartments, right? Where you sign up for 12 months, your rent's locked in. Theoretically, we could raise rates on tenants every month if we wanted. We wouldn't have any more tenants, but we could do it. So what our team is doing with some pricing algorithm tools, and most of the larger operators are, is they're consistently managing rate based on occupancy day by day. And a mom and pop operator who my mom and dad, if they owned a storage facility, they're not doing that. So there's just some low hanging fruit when you can come in and plug those types of tools in to a facility that may have been undermanaged typically. Does that make sense? It does. So that's just a computer algorithm. Somebody doesn't come in and go, "Eh, let's raise rates 10 bucks today. It just spits it out in the computer when somebody goes in to rent. It used to be someone being like, all right, well, here's all the rates. Like We think we should be here. And now, yeah, it's a pricing algorithm tool that basically is looking at all the rates in the market by the different sizes and looking at ours and comparing what our occupancy is. If we're really high in occupancy, we're going to jack rates. We're really low in occupancy on a particular unit type, we're going to lower rates. So it's always moving. 
it seems like when I was a kid and you saw self-storage, it was just gravel poured out in a few buildings and there was really no access control. But it seems like now you see most of them are fenced, there's gates. Are these things that you look at as an investor as far as what makes it a better facility or that drives better rental rates? It's market dependent. But what you're describing is sort of like the difference between class A, B, and C apartments, right? In storage, it's not as clearly defined, but there are class A, B, C storage facilities. We're generally trying to position our assets where an institutional investor, it's institutional quality asset. So things like gates, security cameras, those are all given. They have to have them, right? Are there Just still the standard. Yeah. Are there still smaller facilities in rural markets that don't? Sure. But most of the stuff, at least at the scale that we're at, if it doesn't have it, it's getting added when we buy it. The thing to think about, Mike, as a consumer of storage, right, is someone wants to know it's a commodity, right? I mean, it's a metal box on a cement pad. So you're thinking about safety, cleanliness, and price and convenience. That's the fourth one. Like, how close is it to my daily drive? Home? work. And if it fits that and it's clean and it feels like someone's not going to steal all my stuff, and then it's, all right, where's price? And for some consumers, price is number one. They don't really care if they're going to get their stuff stolen, but if it's the cheapest, I'll put it there. So you're factoring in those types of things, I think, when you think about what a storage facility today looks like. Do you see better profitability, or again, is it just per market with things like uh, heated units, climate control, so they're heated, air conditioned, or the ones that have indoor loading? So now it's a big warehouse with little units in it. Have those been better investments or just depends on where it's at? Rate is dictated more by market. All of the things you mentioned are true. Like if you have a three-story facility, the unit closest on the first floor closest to the loading dock is going to be the most expensive because everybody wants that. The unit in the back on the third floor, that's going to be the cheapest because nobody wants to get in their elevator, go up three floors and push their stuff with their cart to that third, right? So there's different pricing algorithms within your own unit mix. But generally, rate is dictated by the rest of the market, right? What's happening in the rest of the market and how much demand there is and occupancy with all your competitors, right? Because the rate isn't set just by us. We can, but if we're 30 bucks more a month than everybody else, and we're generally offering the same product, why would someone come here, right? I mean, we yeah. have nice customer service and nice facilities, but generally they're going to be like, well, that's these are commodities. So the rate is really dictated by the market and how strong the demand in the market is. And that moves around, right? As new supply comes into the market, prices generally drop, right? Basic supply and demand. And then as those fill up and everybody fills up, then everybody starts to raise prices. So that's part of our underwriting when we're looking at a deal is understanding what are those market dynamics that drive the rate that we're looking at when we're underwriting a deal. So if an investor is looking at an operation to invest in passively, just because it has climate control or just because it has a loading dock or whatever doesn't necessarily mean it's a better investment. It all comes back to the people managing it and the market they're in and how the property is managed. Yeah, for sure. And those things you mentioned, everybody's got them. 
climate control is not like a thing. Everybody's got climate control units, right? Unless you're in a really rural market and maybe all the competition is older, but generally those are not differentiators at this point in the maturity of the asset class. Because again, metal box, cement pad, like we all kind of have the same ones. And what you're betting on, Mike, is that the team you're investing with has done their homework to understand, well, what are the market rates we can get in this market for our climate controlled units? And are we going to be able to be profitable with that? That's what you're betting on as an investor. Because look, you're a urologist. You're not going to go out and do a market comp analysis and know what it is. Just like I'm not going to look at somebody's PSA score and be like, oh, we should do this. I don't know. And you don't either, right? So you're really betting that this is goes back to the team and track record that the team knows, okay, here's how we evaluate a good market versus a bad market. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of the shiny object syndrome that sometimes when you're new to investing in things, you're like, wow, I'd like to invest in that place. That looks really nice. Or look, they got climate control. That's great. If it's not run by the right people, or if the market demographics aren't there, it doesn't mean it's going to be a good investment. So it's more back to the people running it and whether they're actually running it in a way that you get a good return for your investment. Yeah. I don't mean to overstate it, but that team and track record thing, right? For guys and gals who are just getting started in passive investing, you can go down all kinds of rabbit holes and try to do your own due diligence. Look, if we're bad people and we want to hide stuff in our financial model, you're never going to see it. You know what I mean? Like, again, find great people who have a great track record and it's not perfect, but it's a pretty good place to start. And I guess if you're a non-expert and you're trying to evaluate the investment, you're not going to know as much as the experienced people who do it every day who are running it. You're trusting those people. It's the same thing if you buy stock. If I decide I want to buy Coke instead of Pepsi, I'm kind of saying I think Coke is doing a better job at selling beverages than Pepsi. So it's kind of looking at those people and go, okay, you're the expert. I don't know how to mix up a Coca-Cola. So I'm going to assume you're going to have to believe that the people I'm investing with are doing it right. So the same thing with real estate is if I'm investing passively, the reason for that is you're the expert, you're doing the work. And so probably one of the best places to spend your time is investigating the people. And finding groups, and they exist, of people that are vetting deals all the time who have already invested and have experience that you can talk to about and get their reference on, right? Peer groups are a huge part of this. And there's some big ones out there um, that you can talk to other people who have done it with that sponsor and say, hey, what was your experience like? How is their communication to you as an investor? When things go wrong, how do they react? Because they will, right? Like we've had this incredible run in real estate. And now Warren Buffett says it, right? When the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked and the tide is coming out. And there's some people that are stuck and they're not bad people, but now is where you figure out who you got as a partner, right? Are they doing the right things or the best that they can to save your investment, save their own interest in the deal as well? So these groups, because this is something that this is a little bit new to me because as a doctor, I mean, we went to school and you put your head in a book and you study, 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 and then you go to residency. And it's even worse. You're like, what time is it? Is it light outside? You yeah. walk out, find out that three months passed since you last left the hospital. And <laughs> we could probably have another podcast about is the medical education system broken? <laughs> so then all of a sudden now you got a job 
and you start making some money and you're trying to invest and you realize, and it can be overwhelming because you're supposed to be an expert at everything now, but that you don't know these things. So these groups you're talking about, and this is one I could just see some of the people who I know listen to the show going, what? Where do I find these groups? Or do you have any guidance there on where to find these groups? There's actually a guy. It's called Passive Income MD. Do you know who Peter Kim is? I do know who Peter Kim is. So Peter Kim is a great guy. He was an anesthesiologist and basically did exactly what you are doing. Peter has a group where you can join his group and net your paying for education on this exact topic. And I don't know how many people he has in it, but he just had his conference in California. They have an annual conference where you can talk to other physicians who are doing exactly what you were trying to do. There's a group called, I don't think he'll mind us mentioning, it's called Private Investor Club. His name's Ian Ippolito. It's PIC, P-I-C, and Ian Ippolito is I-A-N-I-P-P-O-L-I-T-O. If you are an accredited investor, you can join his group for free. And they have thousands of members at this point where groups like us get to pitch to them. That's the value for us, right? We get 2,000 investors in one place. And then they try to negotiate better terms with us because they can invest larger check sizes as an aggregate versus you as a single investor. Groups like that, you can hear what their experience is. And when you have that many, generally, someone is going to know who you're talking about, right? Like if you're like, hey, you know, I got this deal. Does anyone know this sponsor? You can bet that there's opportunity for someone in there to say, yeah, I've invested with them. Here's been my experience. And then, you know, Mike, groups like CrowdStreet and Realty Mogul that are doing these crowdfunding sites online have incredible amounts of education for people. And I will tell you, we did some deals with Realty Mogul early in their career. They put us through a much higher level of due diligence than you as an individual will ever do. I mean, these are sophisticated institutional real estate investors who run their platforms. And so it's not perfect, but generally if a sponsor is on that platform, they're not a fly-by-night operation. So those are some easy things that you can do. Get engaged, find people that you can vet these deals with. Usually where people get in trouble, the story always starts with, I knew this guy. And then it's like, the guy brought me this thing. And those are usually the stories that don't turn out as well. Oh, that's interesting because actually when I was starting into this world and I'm reading stuff and I took a course from Peter Kim and it was one of the first times and I'm like, all this information is out there. It's out there in the internet. It's for free. And I think the course was $2,000. I don't know what it is now. And I finally went, what are my chances of losing money on investments? How much do I want to make on investments? What's $2,000? And it was a great course. And it's true. Everything in the course was available somewhere for free. But for the value of my time to have it packaged and presented in a way that kind of walked through the learning so that step two was built off of step one and step three was built off of step two, it was an incredible value. I'm going to call Peter and get an affiliate link. So that all the people that are signing up for his course right now, we're going to get paid on. I'm going to text them right now. All right. That's awesome. It's a great shout out. And even in some cities, there are local investor clubs. A lot of those are more focused on people who are buying duplexes and kind of stuff like that. But in bigger cities, 
There's some more sophisticated ones. There's a very sophisticated one in Cincinnati because I know some of the people in it that with Joe Fairless and Ash Patel and where we first met at Joe's conference, that something's local. And I think if you start looking for those and going to them, you start realizing what kind of people you're hanging out with. And you can go to some of these meetups without well, maybe some of these groups you have to pay to join, but it's often compared to what you might get out a lot that you can gain from it. Yeah, we sponsor one here in Atlanta, Mike. It's called the NAPIC, North Atlanta Passive Income Club. And the idea is put a whole bunch of people in a group together who are trying to educate and aggregate. They feel like they'll get better deal flow if they have the opportunity to show more buying power to operators like Reliant. So yeah, I would highly encourage look in your town and see if that exists. Because if you can crowdsource the due diligence, you're going to find things that you never would find on your own. And the great thing about those two for somebody who's newer is the people who have had success, and this is something I found very, that seems different in commercial real estate, that they've found this financial freedom and they're happy about it and they like to share it. And if you're the new guy showing up, often it's like, oh, welcome. Let us show you the stuff we wish we had known. <laughs> To begin with, I mean, that was part of why this show is here is I was like, ah, this took me forever. And why did I have to go all over the place trying to find information and that maybe we can make it a little simpler for the people who are listening? So I think in every aspect of life, right? Mentors are so powerful. And that can be you in your medical career, right? It can be from your investing career. It can be how you want to live your life, finding people who've done what you want to do and find a way to bring them value so that they share that value with you. Like you said, most of the time, people want to teach it. They want to say, you know, if someone's coming to you and saying, hey, Mike, would you teach me how to do what you're really good at? You love to talk about what you're really good at. So and, you feel like a superhero, like, yes. Yeah. So, well, Chris, let, thank let me impart my wisdom upon you. <laughs> it's so true. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been awesome. Any last thoughts you have, parting words that you would love for doctors to know about either the self-storage space or investing in commercial real estate in general? Yeah. I mean, what I would say is if you're just kind of starting your journey and we hit on it in both episodes, but really focus on team and track record, spend your time there and you'll do well, or you can do well. The other thing that I would say is it's about singles and doubles for 20 years. Don't lose principal, try not to pay tax, and then hit singles and doubles for a long time. Like there are no, uh, I shouldn't say there are no, usually there are no great get rich quick schemes and real estate isn't one of those either. But over 10 years, 15, 20 years, that money is real. So I would just encourage you to play the slow game, educate yourself, and then the last piece is, but you got to act. So many people analysis paralysis themselves for five years, and you can't get that time back. That's the most powerful investment tool there is. So hopefully that's helpful stuff. And, you know, Mike, I think what you're doing and giving people the opportunity to learn is incredibly powerful. Well, thank you. And thanks for being on the show. If somebody wants to reach out to you or Reliant, best way to get a hold of you. Yeah, our website is probably best. It's reliant-mgmt.com. We do a lot of social media, LinkedIn. If you Google us or me in Reliant, you're going to find a bunch of stuff. And then you can get in touch with myself or our investor relations team and happy to help however we can. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and for everybody listening. Thank you for being here. I hope this has been of value. And we look forward to seeing you again on a next episode. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better. So I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. I'm looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.